Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 6, we're uh, in a series on the salvation that God provides, so great a salvation, and we've been looking at uh, the way God has been interacting with the Israelites, and as we come to chapter 6, what we get is a glimpse of how God is interacting with uh, his leaders, with his leadership, so the book of Judges is that uh, there is a cycle that Israel was going through, and quite frankly, that all of Christian, every Christian in the world goes through. There's you sinning, God putting you in punishment because he's a loving father, you repenting of your sin, crying out for help, and God giving you grace. And that's the story of our life. This is the cycle that we flow in. I could just follow you around for a week. And I would be able to see that cycle in your life. How do I know? Because you can follow me around. And in, the, in a week, you could see that cycle in my life. And sometimes we do that in small ways. And in other ways, we do that in big ways. But the reality is, is we are all on equal playing field because of sin. And so we're looking at the great salvation that God provides us. But when you come to Judges chapter 6... Uh, Gideon is an interesting guy. Uh, Gideon has, for millennia, been given a bad rap. All right, he's been the quintessential guy hiding in the wine press, terrified, huddled in a corner. And uh, when you take a deep look into Judges six, seven, and eight, uh, my perspective of Gideon has shifted in studying this week, and I'm going to try to convince you to change your perspective of Gideon as well, because the reality is, is that Gideon is weak, yes. But what's amazing is how God becomes strong through Gideon. And then there's a choice that you and I make at the end uh, of God working in our life. So we're going to get there, but uh, to, to start with, I want to go through this idea, the big idea. If you've got notes, uh, there's some on the back table there you can grab. We're also in the Version app under events. You can find Redeemer City Church and follow along that way. I'll have the scriptures and the notes there. But this big idea in Judges 6, 7, and 8 is this, that God is moving. God is moving. And uh, we often look around in our life, at least I do, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I doubt it, and uh, that was a backhanded um, rebuke in case you missed it, but um, I'm kidding. So one of the things that happens in our life is we can be going through life and doing things and doing things and doing things, and in our culture get so busy doing stuff that we can get into uh, a season of life and we stop and look around and say, where is God in this? Where is God? Sometimes it's in your suffering. Sometimes it's in your sin. And sometimes it's in your triumph. We're going to see a little bit later that sometimes success is your greatest enemy. And what we want to do is look at this idea that God is moving. What does it mean to be moving? Okay, let me just give you a really simple example that all of us are going to understand immediately. Have you ever been on Interstate 4 at 5.30 p.m.? Raise your hand. Okay, you know what not moving is. How many of you have been on Interstate 4 at like 2 in the morning? Then you know what moving is, okay? 
So we understand this concept. I'm not moving. I am moving. Why is that so important to the Christian life? Because we tend to get caught up in what we're doing instead of what God is doing. Because when you change that perspective, suddenly it doesn't become about what I'm doing in my little world and in my little progress. You get real discouraged real fast if you are the barometer of spiritual life, if you are the barometer of Christianity. But if you step outside of that, you know, sometimes it's just good to get on Google Earth and just zoom out and realize that you, nobody cares who you are except for us. Okay, and uh, so that that is uh, discouraging and encouraging all at the same time. But there there is perspective there that the God of the universe is controlling all of this. There's a little kid song that we used to sing when I was a kid. He's got the whole world. Yeah, you know it, right? And so what were they trying to teach us? You're not the center of the world. That God, the God of the universe has the entire world in the palm of his hand. And he's in control. And we need that as adults. Maybe we should start singing that every week. Because we start to think that we have to take it on our shoulders. And we don't. And so in Judges 6, 7, and 8, we're going to look at five ways that God is moving in your life. Some of them come across negative. But I want you to know that the negative always leads to the positive. Because for good news to come, there's always bad news. But it's really not bad news. In you getting the right perspective of you, you will gain the right perspective of God. And that's good news. And uh, so, number one, in Judges chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, here's what God is doing. It is the word that condemns you. The word that that condemns you. Look at Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 7. This is the story of Gideon. What's happening is Israel enjoyed a little bit of peace, and then they uh, walked away from the Lord. The book of Judges repeatedly uses the phrase that they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot what He was doing. He would rescue them, and then they would experience the peace of living in prosperity And then they would forget God, who among us has not been in that place. When life is going good, we can have a tendency to forget God. And so that's Israel. And so God puts his hand on a group of people called the Midianites. And they come in and wreak havoc and take over God's people. And here is verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. That's kind of funny. Okay? They don't want a prophet. They want a soldier. They don't want God to bring a word to them. They want God to deliver them. Okay? And sometimes... It's important for you and I to recognize that God doesn't work on our timetable. That we may want to escape our circumstances when God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Does that make sense? See, we often ask God to rescue us when that trial is in fact what is rescuing us. God's not always after 
easy. Even if we're after easy. And that's so easy to preach at you, it's so hard to live. Because we're wired to want an easier life. From the very beginning in the garden, we were after an easier life. So look what happens. God sends them a prophet. And the prophet says to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Here's the one problem with that. The people he, this prophet's saying this to weren't in Egypt. So why is God saying to people who weren't in Egypt, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt? We're learning something about the character of God in that moment. That what God was doing for his people then is what God is doing for you now. Had God not brought his people out of slavery, uh, had God not rescued those people, Jesus wouldn't have come through that line and Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross for your sins. Now I know for all of the theological snobs in the room that God would have made a way. I get that. But God chose to work in this way. And he was teaching us something about himself. That he's not always after us escaping our circumstances. He may want you to interpret your circumstances because God is always moving and he's moving in the word that condemns you. And that's good news. That God would bring you a right perspective of you. If I could just boil down my spiritual life for you, just have a moment of transparency with you. If God would just continually, and he is, he gave me a wife and three children, to just continually remind me and sand off those rough edges that you are not everything you need to be. And so we work at that. You know this experience. You work at that. You get better at that. You look back in your life and you've made some progress, but you've not arrived at who you want to be. There are still days where you roll out of bed and you have a bad day. There's still days where you're just like, no, I don't want to do that. And you don't do it. We all have this experience and it is God's grace that comes in and reminds you that you are not all that you were meant to be. All that you have been called to be and that's important for us. Because the moment we think we are all that we are called to be, we forget our need for a Savior. The longer you go without depending on the Lord, man, the more dangerous that is. And it is the grace of God that grabs you and brings you back. The Midianites were actually an instrument of God's grace in the people of Israel's life. Better to be in the punishment of God than in the pleasure of your sin. Because if I'm just walking in the pleasure of my sin, I have no idea how far away that I've walked from my God. And it's God's grace that brings us back. So there's a word that condemns us and it gives us a right perspective of me. And that's so important because that first word that comes in is God's law. And the Bible's very clear that God's law is perfect and good and right. 
Sometimes in, in our uh, culture, we can, we can tend to downplay the law of God because we live under grace. And we do live under grace, and we're grateful for that grace, but God's law is still perfect. The Bible refers to it as the perfect law of liberty. Why is it the law that leads us to liberty? Because it gives you a right perspective of you so that when grace comes in, you understand what God is doing for you. That's why we take communion, so that we would recenter ourselves on what this is all about. That God has come and rescued his people, and we're now on mission with him, bringing his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. There's a word that condemns you, and it's good news. But then we come to number two. We drop down to verse 11 in Judges 6. And uh, number two is this, that there is grace that delivers you. See, when God brings his word to condemn you, without fail in the Bible, there comes grace that delivers you. Look at what happens here in the story of Gideon, verse 11. So, Back up to verse 10, it says, the very last thing there, it says, but you did not obey me. That's condemnation. It's condemnation. You did not obey me. But then verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And this is what has brought Gideon near and dear to me. I love the way he interacts with God because he's honest. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Gideon is asking the questions that you and I ask. He just got to ask it face to face. Why? Why do we have to go through this? And, and here's what he has. He's got Bible to back it up. Look at this. And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, I can hear the sarcasm in his voice. I love it. Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned and said, listen, listen to how your God interacts with you. Listen to this. This is amazing. If some little squirt had said that to you, maybe one of your children, where are all the great things you've done, Father? What would you do? (laughs) A swift punishment would be appropriate. But listen to what God says. So Gideon's whining a little bit, calling God out for not showing up. And here's his answer in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Where are you at, God? I'm in you. I'm in you. And I'm sending you. How many of us is that our perspective when we're in a trial that God is actually behind the scenes moving in us and through us and sending us to do his work. Would that change the trials that you walk through? That God is always behind the scenes, always doing something, always moving in and through you because 
That word that came to condemn you has re-centered your perspective on what God is doing and then he's bringing grace that's going to deliver you. How does the grace deliver you? Did Gideon join a small group? Did Gideon uh, go get a mentor? He probably needed one. I mean, that was bad theology. Where are you, God? What's the matter with you? What did God do? God sent him out and used him. When Gideon stopped looking inside and started looking outside, God began to use him. And God was going to use him to do some incredible, incredible things. But the grace that delivers you is otherworldly. It's outside of you. See, Gideon was looking inside and asking, God, why aren't you working in our life? Why aren't, why aren't you making life easier for me? When God was not intending to make life easier for him. God wasn't intending to make life easier for them. Now, God in his grace may still do that for you, and he's going to do that for Israel, but he certainly doesn't have to. He certainly doesn't have to. There's a grace that delivers you. You need a right perspective. I thought it would be helpful to read, for, read to you from uh, this commentary. There's a, if you want to grab a commentary and study some of these things a little bit deeper, this is a great one. It's called Judges. novel concept, Judges, and it's by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. Really good, really good. But I wanted to read you uh, from this because sometimes it's helpful for us to get an outside perspective. Here's what he says. We Western Christians do not understand Gideon's agony in verse 22. Okay, let's look at it. Look at verse 22. It says, when Gideon realized that he was with the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord, face to face. He was terrified. He was asking questions and he's terrified. And and here's what Dr. Davis has to say. Such talk is strange to us. We long to reach our warm hand through the print of our Bible page, pat Gideon's shoulder and soothe him with, don't worry, brother Gideon. God's not really scary like that. If only you had a New Testament, a pained, perplexed look would come over Gideon as if he had just heard a theological ignoramus. And so he did. This sort of talk is strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. There's nothing that... is amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. But thankfully, Gideon knew better. Nothing is more assuring than God's I will be with you. Nothing is more overwhelming than the fact that it is God who says it. It is only God who can speak peace to the trembling. It's an important perspective for us because we live in a place where when God ought to destroy, he often delivers and we can miss that it is the very God of the universe who is moving in your life. There is a grace that delivers and how amazing 
that grace truly is. Let's pick up the story here where God talks to Gideon. He answers him in verse 16 and says, but I will be with you. Or no, back up. We're one before that. Verse 14. The Lord turned and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. And so here's Gideon's answer. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's family. And God comes to him again and says, but I will be with you. The Lord said to him, you will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Then he said to him, if I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. There's a lot of opinions about that verse out there in the theological world. That uh, some, some would say Gideon was living in sin, that he was in sin for questioning God. Um, I, I can't go there because of God's answers to Gideon. If Gideon was living in sin, why did God appease that so often? Why did God repeatedly come back with answers that he was going to do something great? That he didn't need to be afraid. That God was with him. It's actually given me some respect for Gideon. I think a lot of times we just hide behind what we're supposed to say instead of what we're actually saying. That sometimes we feel the need in in church to put on this facade that everything's okay when things are not always okay. Because the reality is, is that none of us are really okay. That this week you had some things in your life that you would like to ask God why. And you know that God has come to you and said, I'm going to work in your life anyway. I'm going to do some stuff in your life anyway. But it's hard for you to see past that. And maybe sometimes you feel like saying to God what Gideon was saying, well, if you could like, just go ahead and write that on the wall for me with like a, with like a glowing hand, that'd be great. And then, then I would know. A lot of times we, we knock Gideon for his questions, but God never knocks Gideon for his questions. What I think we're seeing here with Gideon is, is not um, absent faith, but cautious faith. Because he isn't God. And he can't see the future. He only has the promises of God. And so he keeps revisiting the promise that God is giving to him. Why do you, how can you do that? You can't have a conversation with God where he's audibly speaking back to you like Gideon. So how do you revisit over and over the promises of God? Right here. This, it says that you know who I am because I'm the God who brought your fathers out of here and out of there and rescued them here and rescued them there. And you can flip through this entire Bible and you can read the story of God, the promises of God over and over and over and over. Jesus went so far, we talk about this a lot. Jesus went so far as to say it'd be better for him to just go away because the Holy Spirit could take you through this book and reveal himself to you and you would be able to do way greater things than Jesus himself could. You're like, okay, that's dumb. Except that Jesus said it. So if we would just get serious about knowing that there is grace that delivers us wherever we are, financial struggle, relational struggle, uh, relational drought, uh, you know, with your kids, with your work, wherever you are, single, married, uh, teenager, wherever you are in life, God is moving. 
He's giving you a right perspective of who you are. He's giving you a right perspective of who he is so that he can use you to bring his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. And the sooner we get on board with that, the sooner we'll experience joy. See, a lot of us are chasing happiness when we ought to be chasing joy. And so God is moving. He's always moving. And he's moving in the grace that delivers you because he ought to destroy us but instead he delivers us. Number three, there's a direction that engages you. So the word comes and condemns you, giving you that right perspective of you. The grace comes and delivers you, giving you the right perspective of God. And then there's direction that engages you in what God is doing. Look at Judges chapter 6, verse 25. It says, On that very night, The Lord said to him, to Gideon, Take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. And I love that the Bible doesn't leave any details out. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. Another place where Gideon gets a bad rap. But God never gives him a bad rap. God said do this. He didn't say do it in the daytime. You see, sometimes we walk out into the world and you say, well, but I'm just not going to have answers if I wear my faith on my sleeve. Well, God didn't ask you to have answers. He asked you to be faithful. He asked you to be salt and light. He asked you to tell people why you believe what you believe. He said it this way, to give an answer for the hope that lives within you. You don't got to answer everybody's theological questions. But you can tell them why you have a hope within you. And if you're faithful to that, God will be faithful to you. He'll be faithful to carry you through that. God's moving in you and there's a direction from him that engages you in the process. And so Gideon's doing it. Not perfectly, because Gideon's not perfect. But he's doing it. And so here, here he is, uh, verse 28, when the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down. The Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. And they said to each other, who is this? Who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. At this point, I would be scared. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I said I would die for you, God, but I didn't really mean it. <laughs> but look at what his dad says. And I want you to be able to declare this in your life over the idols that have propped themselves up in your life. Because with that right perspective of God, you need a right perspective of the idols in your life. And Joash is going to give you that perspective. And I don't know what that idol is for you. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's whatever. You fill in the blank. But listen to the perspective that Joash gives us. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, he must die. He tore down our altars. Verse 31. 
But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by mourning. And here it is. If he is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. And that day he was called Jerubbabel since Joash said, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. There's some lessons in that for you and for me. If the things you're chasing in your life are so great, just put them up against the evidence. Have they provided what you had hoped they would provide? Without a doubt, I could say that they haven't. You know, we chase a lot of things in our life, and God says, hold up the evidence. Are they providing for you what they thought that they would provide? And you know what? When somebody points that stuff out in my life, I kind of get defensive, don't you? I don't do that. It's not who I am. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you're... (laughs) But what does it say? Whoever this God is, let them plead their case. They're not delivering for you. Why don't you get honest about that? They're not delivering on the promise they've made. Idols promise happiness and lead to despair. God never promises happiness, but it always brings joy. But he always brings joy. Let Baal contend. See, because the direction that engages you is kind of like when your kid gets a cut, right? If your kid slides across the dirt and gets a cut, and it's all dirty... You don't just stick a Band-Aid on it, right? You know, rub it off. <laughs> go play. You know, you might do that to build character. But what do you, what do, you do after they've learned their lesson? You've got to wash it out, right? You wash it out. How many, how many of you, like when you were growing up, your parents took peroxide and just dumped it in your cut? Like that was a great idea or something? They got this giant gash in your knee and they're like, let me get the, let me get the peroxide. <laughs> You're like, think you're dying. You're like, I don't, I'm, I pl- don't plan to go to hell, but if I was, this is what it would feel like all the time. Because they just dump this stuff in your cut, and you're like, ah! Like, why not just soap and water, Mom? Why not? No, peroxide. We're going to kill everything in there, right? I don't know. Some, some of you are doctors. Is there a better practice than that? I don't know. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we actually love our kids, right? It's not just slap a bandit on it, get out of my face. No, we want them to actually heal. So we treat the wound first, and then we cover it up, and then the process of healing begins. Some of you have wounds in your life that God wants to clean out and deal with, and then begin the process of healing. And so before he can engage you in the great work that he's doing, sometimes he has to engage you in the process of becoming who he's called you to be. So there's a process, there's a a thing that God is doing to engage you in the work of his mission and in his kingdom. 
And whatever it is, whether it be an idol or something else, I think about the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 where he comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And God just knew him and said, okay, we'll go sell everything you have and then follow me. And he walks away sad. Why? Because there was still something between him and what God was doing. Him and the Lord. And so like Gideon shows us, whether you're scared or not, you have to cut down those idols. You have to cut down those altars. God will not coexist with your gods. Exodus 34 says he's a jealous God. And he wants your soul attention. There's a direction that engages you. Number four, just like the word condemned you, number four, the word also settles you. The word settles you. Judges chapter 6, verse 33 to 40 says this, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and whatever that word is, Quedemites, that's weird, gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the Jezreel Valley. Things, are go- things have gone from bad to worse for Gideon. Okay, see, how many, how many of you know, we've been in church for a while, like, not only do you have to fight against God's people, <laughs> you also have to fight against the people who aren't God's people. So if you're a Christian wanting to do God's will, you are also, you're fighting with the family. Who doesn't have a family they don't fight with? Listen, don't you leave here when you get offended. Just come fight, all right? We can work through it, okay? There's family fighting going on, and there's the mission of God fighting going on. And here's Gideon, little old Gideon, who had a right perspective of himself. I'm the weakest dude in the weakest family in the weakest country. And here come all y'all countries coming to fight me because God said you were going to strike him down as one man. This, this, is, this is going really well. How many of you feel like that in your life? God, you've called me to do all of this, but you forgot that it's me, little old me. And here's what happens. So they're camped in the Jezreel Valley. But look at verse 34, and you can rest in this promise. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. First time I read that, I thought it said enveloped. I was like, that's, that's good. I can track with that. It's like an envelope. It closes on top of me. It's not. Enveloped Gideon. It's more like clothing. Some of your translations will say clothed Gideon. It's a great picture to think of. And he blew the ram's horn and the Abizrites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and um, Naphtali who also came to meet him. Verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand as you said. I love Gideon. I just love Gideon. All this stuff is happening. God's doing all this stuff in front of him. And he's like, he's like Just in case you forgot, uh, God, um, uh, um, uh, if you'll deliver Israel by my hand, but, but he already knows the answer. What's the next phrase say? As you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. What's the next verse? God in his grace, the word that assures you, and that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed out the fleece and wrung the dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon said to God, uh, 
God, um, uh, don't be angry with me. <laughs> don't be angry. You ever have, a, have, have you, do you have children or have you been around children? Like this is like children stuff. Like I already said it. Like my kids like, can I have this? Um, can I, can I, can I already said yet. Yeah. What did I say? What did I say? Like if I was God and you kept praying to me the same thing, I would, I would get down on one knee like this. I'd be like, Jake, what did I say? What did I say? Okay, repeat it to me, Jake. <laughs> right? Like this, this is how we parent. And how many of you know God is just a faithful father? Because look at what he does for Gideon. Gideon, don't be angry. Don't be angry. Let me speak one more time. Just one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew all over the ground. Look at verse 40. That night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. Gideon's faith was not absent. It was cautious. But what I love about this part of the story is God's willingness to answer. In the midst of all that God's doing, in giving you the right perspective of you, in giving you the right perspective of him, he is a faithful, loving, and good father. See, what I also know is that in a room this size, some of you are maybe afraid of God, maybe scared of what he's asking you to do, or you just don't really trust God. Like it's just easier to trust what you can hold in your hand, what you can see with your eyes. And God would just repeatedly come into your heart and remind you that he is a loving, patient, and good father. And that what he's doing in your life, he's doing for a reason. And if you will be faithful, the Bible says in Thessalonians that he will be faithful to do it. That while it feels like you have to be the one doing it, God is actually the one working in and through you and he is doing it. And there is a word that settles you. There's a word of assurance for your heart, for your time, for your life. And that though you don't matter in the scheme of things, you matter so much to the one who made you. There's a word that settles you. And it is so important for us to remember Gideon is a regular guy. He's a little guy. He's just a little guy. By his own admission. And yet God is using him, is faithful to him, and continually answers Gideon's questions. Even though Gideon, in the question, answers the question. God, I know what you said, so don't get angry with me. But if you could just tell me one more time, that would be great. And we've got 66 books of the Bible that tell you over and over and over, God is faithful, he will do it. God is faithful, he will do it. God is faithful, he will do it. And he did it in so many different ways and in so many different lives and in so many different times. And we serve a timeless God who is always at work and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. The same God who met Gideon in the wine press is the same God who meets you on your couch. Same God who met Gideon in the Valley of Jezreel is the same God who meets you at work. And I'm throwing stuff at you because I'm excited about it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Number five, strength made perfect in weakness. Strength made perfect in weakness. 
the beauty of the whole story. We're not going to read chapter 7 if you're wondering if I'm going to finish and not preach through all of 7 and 8. I'm not. But the story is this. Gideon amasses a giant army. He does what any good leader would do. Just amass as many people as you can for the mission that God's called you to. And God looks at Gideon and just says, there's too many. There's too many. (laughs) Can you imagine Gideon? Like, man, it took everything I had to just go ahead and do that, God. And I'm still horrified. Because the battle hasn't even taken place. And so he's gathering people and gathering people. And God uses a series of circumstances. You can read it in your devotions this week, chapter 7, to just whittle that army down. And so he whittles it down from tens of thousands to just 300 guys. And then doesn't give them weapons. He gives them a horn. Man, it's not even like a brass trumpet. It doesn't even have valves. It's just like a horn. It's like a kazoo. Uh-huh. And uh, that was good. Thank you. That's right. One of my many hidden talents you didn't know about. You're welcome. And uh, will never be useful to you again. And uh, the teenagers are impressed. I want you to know. But uh, they're just easily amused. Anyways. So God whittles this army down to 300 people and then just says, you know, Gideon's freaking out. (laughs) What are you doing? And God just says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because what God is doing in your life is not about you getting strong enough to do it on your own. The very point of what you're walking through right now is that you aren't big enough to do it. That is the point. We go back to one of the very first things I said. We may want to escape our circumstances when God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Where God has you is so that you will learn about Him and that others can meet Him. God has you going through what you are going through so that you will come to know Him and others will get to meet Him. God is always moving and he's moving in strength through your weakness first corinthians 127 says it this way that god chooses to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong that's our story it's our story that's my story it's your story strength made perfect in weakness so that leaves us with a choice And the Bible's very honest. Because at the end of chapter 8, and we'll close with this, is that we have a choice for folly or finishing. We have a choice, folly or finishing. See, success can be our greatest enemy. Success can be our greatest enemy. Look at the end of chapter 8 there in verse 22. So Gideon leads the people. God does incredible things army of Midian actually destroys themselves. Gideon never had to lift a finger. They just blow trumpets and bash pots and all the people, like all the armies wake up like in there in the middle of the night. You have somebody ever wake up in the middle of the night? Like it's crazy. You're like, ah! and they just start killing each other and, and they wipe themselves out. And can you imagine me and Gideon up on the mountain? Like <laughs> it's happening, it's happening. And so it's so euphoric. The people are so amazed Look at what they do. They come to Gideon naturally, right? Naturally. Because God's hand was clearly on Gideon. 
In verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. Uh, Wrong. Gideon didn't do squat. All Gideon did was keep asking God questions, like an annoying child. And look at this, to Gideon's credit, verse 23, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's a great statement. The problem is Gideon didn't mean it. You see, one of the confusing things here is uh, we might think that Gideon actually refused becoming the king over Israel, but I don't think he did. I think it was just his pious way of saying, I will assume the leadership here. I will rule over you, but it's going to be God ruling over you. And that was the right thing to say, But Gideon didn't make the choice to follow through on that. Because look what happens. Then he said to them, let me make a request of you, everyone. Give me an earring from his plunder. And they bring him all this stuff. The weight of the gold earrings, verse 26, is just mounting. They're uh, doing it with the uh, garments of the Midian king and all kinds of things. I mean, they they had necklaces on their camels for crying out loud. So verse 27, Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel, listen to this, prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. How many of you know that even church can become a snare to you and your household? That even the very things that God is calling you to do can become a snare to you if you think that you're doing it in your own power and your own strength. You have a choice for folly or finishing. You see, because there, there's two aspects. Romans 2.4 says that uh, there, there is a possibility that you would forget that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That as you begin to see God work, you get used to it and you begin to expect it instead of be amazed by it. And that you would forget that it was the kindness of God that led to repentance because when God ought to have destroyed you, he delivered you. And Israel had forgotten that when they ought to have been destroyed, God delivered them. And Gideon forgot that when he ought to have been destroyed, God delivered him. And they threw a giant party and the Bible says that they prostituted themselves to another idol. And the same danger is there for you and me. That we can see God do all of these things and we can hear his word over and over and over again at church and we can gather together and sing his praises and actually be prostituting ourselves to another God. But the choice to finish is there too because 1 Corinthians 1.8 says that um, God will give you the strength to carry you to the end. And so we have, this, we have this choice to make. And yes, it's in God's sovereignty. And yes, God is always moving and always working. But he always chooses to give you a choice. Will you live in your folly despite all of what you've seen God do? Tomorrow, when you wake up, will you live in your folly? Will you go back to work and do the same thing in the same way for the same person? Or will you see what God has done and in his strength finish the job he's called you to do? You've got a choice. 
folly or finishing. Success can be your greatest enemy. God has shared his glory with us and he's reflected it in us, the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. And one day he's going to glorify us. But for his worship and not for ours. For his glory and not for ours.